You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Here we go, episode 18 of Not Another Leafs Podcast on the Hockey Podcast Network. Ken Stapon joined by Brendan McCarthy. BMAC, what's up, brother? I'm good, Kenny. How are you? I'm good. I'll tell you, I missed all this whole thing this weekend with like the Tyson fights, and I don't even know who the other guy is that knocked out <laughs> Nate, Nate Robinson, his name Jake Paul. Yeah, he's a YouTube correct? influencer. He's He's a really big deal. Okay, yeah, I have no idea what's going on with that, but I saw people blowing up on it about – blowing up about it rather on social media. I don't really understand what the buzz is about. I saw Robin Leonard among other NHL players tweeting at him that they would fight him and probably kick his ass. And I'm tend to agree with the fact that he might have a little bit of trouble if he's climbing into the ring with the likes of uh, Ryan Reeves, Vander Kane, or even Leonard, who, although he's a goaltender spends a lot of his time training MMA during the off season. Yeah. Twitter was just blowing up. And, they loved it. You know, Jake Paul seems like a bit of a mutt, but clearly can box. And he did ultimately knock out Nate Robinson. Yeah, so, pretty cleanly too by the videos I saw. Right. And clearly the two toughest guys in the NHL are Ryan Reeves and Evander Kane. But they're, Tom Wilson they have something to say about that. And, and Tom Wilson. They're, they're, there's your, yeah, your they're, top they're, tier. Yeah, there's a, bunch of, uh, there's a bunch of guys at the top. Yeah. But do you think almost it's it's too much? I think Kane was actually tweeting at Jake Paul saying, "Hey, like August twenty one, me and you, man, like book it, like <laughs> let's like try against like a, an NHL instead of an NBA." And I don't know, man. They they might be in over their heads, you know. Well, he's been training said, for about three years, right? Yeah. So basically, what they're going off the facts is that they've been in a fair amount of scraps. I think obviously scrapping on skates is a little bit of a different animal than climbing into the ring, right? But Whenever you look at somebody that's taking formal training, and from what I understand, Jake Paul's been basically training to box for about the last two or three years, I would have to say that that makes it a little bit of a different animal. I'd have to look at the size advantage as well, because I think that he actually had a little bit of a size advantage over Nate Robinson. I'm not sure if that would be the case if he was going to go climb into the ring versus Leonard, who's a bigger guy. Kane and Reeves are obviously bigger guys who are calling him out. But I think that would be the biggest thing. I'll tell you what I'm upset about. And it was something that happened this past Thursday. I'm a big fan of American Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. And I know the connotations with it and like the historical stuff. And I don't want to get into that. I just like it because there's no religious affiliation. And basically you can just make your own traditions. When I lived in the States, I used to quite enjoy it. Just 
setting up shop. Everybody, you know, you go play football in the morning with your buddies, then you set up shop, you just eat great food all day, and you get to watch some football. Now, what I am perturbed about is the fact that every Thanksgiving, I have to watch the Detroit Lions, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Washington football team. I understand that there's tradition there, but why? We got to change this up, man. These teams are terrible year in, year out. I believe they've only had eight combined playoff appearances between the three of them since 2010. I'm tired of watching mediocrity, and I know that tradition is important, but let's get some teams that deserve to be in there. A little bit of a different matchup, a fresh look, no? Well, it's unfortunate, too, because we were gifted with with a juicy matchup uh, in what would have been game three of the triple headers, Ravens, Steelers, Ravens, but that got pushed like three times. Now we're recording this Monday, the 30th. They're supposed to play Tuesday and yeah, that's, that's night. final. But I mean, that would have been great to finish it off. But instead we have like NFC East bouts that just mean absolutely nothing. It's crazy, man. The NFC East is so bad. I think the Giants it's historically bad. They're yeah, four they're, and seven and they lead the NFC East. Yep. And they're going to host a playoff game. I mean, Whoever wins at, that division is going to host a playoff game. That's insane, man. But yeah, it, uh, to your point, they, they do got to shake it up. Like, it'd be great to see the Bills in there. One of these teams that has a big storyline coming into the season, let's throw them in the mix on Thanksgiving because it, it would be good, I think, for the league to get a more premier matchup. And although I know it's like Detroit hosted the first game ever, I don't want to watch the Detroit Lions. No. I'm, like, I'm sorry. I don't want to watch them. They're a crap football team. They just fired their coach, Matt Patricia who might be at the library bar after just a disastrous campaign, just joining the long list of Patriot coaches coming Good from riddance. the village of Bill Belichick, who just can't pull it together when they get a head coaching gig. Good riddance, man. Like it's about time. How long was he at the helm for the Lions? Uh, must've been about two or three years. I, I believe and I, I can't recall exactly when he left new England, but he had a fair shot to turn that thing around. And I just feel for Matt Stafford, who's just wasted his whole career away in Detroit because he's a good quarterback. Before we get into the hockey talk, there's one other thing I want to touch on, and that's the rumors that the Toronto Blue Jays are going to be getting a new stadium. I believe it was a report in the Toronto Sun this past weekend that basically stated that the Blue Jays are going to be looking for a new home and that they could be looking to demo the Sky Dome and set up fresh, maybe a little bit of a smaller start. And I didn't find this report extremely surprising because the Sky Dome is basically as old as I am. I believe it opened up the same year that I was born in 1990. And obviously a lot of history there, you know, they won the championships there in the early 1990s. But since then, it's basically been a staple of the Toronto skyline, but it's slowly gotten more and more run down and they keep just trying to renovate it and sort of stretch it out. I don't know if this team needs a stadium that fits 60,000 people though, because I know you've probably been there on those miscellaneous Tuesday night games or Monday night games when there's, you know, 12,000 people, 15,000 people in the stands and it just looks empty and just so cavernous, maybe a new home that was a little bit smaller, but still in a central location. I don't know how they're really going to swing that unless they sort of build it in the same area would be beneficial for this team. I don't think it's really necessary, man. I, I've heard that, you know, they're just going to demolish it and rebuild on the same spot or move closer down to the water. But in all honesty, Kenny, why is this the main focus? Like, let, let's let's make a splash with the team. Like, let's go out and acquire, like, the likes of Francisco Lindor or something. Acquiring more players. Like, let's make this like a 2015 2.0 Yeah, when I think that um, 
our Blue Jay reporter over at TSN, Scott Mitchell. With, he's obviously been following this story very closely. Yes. He's basically insinuating that Mark Shapiro, the GM of the Blue Jays and the former GM of the Cleveland Indians, part of the reason that he was brought in was because he has successfully helped the Indians transition into their new stadium. And he sure. understands the schematics and the planning and all the different things to consider when you're looking for a new home and when you're going to be setting up a new ballpark. So just as much as they brought Shapiro and Ross Atkins in to stabilize the franchise and sort of build a contender that was going to be moving into the future and be, well, now it looks like the time is here now competing for years to come. They also did it because schematically they understand what it takes to move a team into a new ballpark. And that's just kind of where the Toronto organization is right now. When you look at the shelf life of a stadium, I mean, the Sky Dome, I think, is in the top 10 oldest stadiums in the league. It's nearly 30 years old, as we just insinuated. And that's generally about how long these stadiums last before teams are looking for a new location. Right. And, you know, the biggest thing, too, with fans, they're just going to be like, okay, like, where do you want us to watch this? Like, we just care about the on-field development and the on-field success. Like, what's next? It's, it's yeah. not going to – it's not – you know, it's not going to change their outlook too much, but that is a good point that you, that you bring up with Shapiro. And, you know, I, I think there's still time for the Jays to really make a big splash like they did in 2015 and acquiring David Price and, and Tulo. But that's really going to generate some, some optimism in, in, in Jays nation. For sure. Uh, speaking of new acquisitions, some Toronto Maple Leafs acquisitions making news this week. Your boy, yes, Rodion Amarov. I don't know if you saw, had a chance to see this, but uh, he had seen kind a few of a botched, a botched shootout attempt. I I didn't see that. I okay. I just seen a, a couple uh, snipes. Yeah, there's been some snipes, but so, I I didn't see the botchery of the of the shootout miss. Yeah, so basically he was just coming down the pipe on a on a breakaway shootout like app like whatever whatever they do in the KHL worst play of the day post game. Yeah, and he basically was in the slot and tried to key it up on tee it up on, with the backhand and accidentally just kicked the puck like back out into center ice and the goalie was just sort of standing there like, well, what the hell was that? Good but, lord. Yeah, it was it was a complete botched attempt. But what I did like from Amarov was after the fact, he went and tweeted out a, like an older post of him botching a shootout attempt even worse when he was a kid, like when he was like 16 or whatever. And he barely got over the blue line before he lost the puck. So he's like, hey, at least this time I almost got I got like closer to the nets or like almost made it to the gates. I thought hey, that was pretty funny. It's a good, good sense of humor from the prospects, understanding how to use social media and sort of twist it in his favor rather than just letting all the Habs fans run away with it, which they were uh, they couldn't have been happier to see that from Amarov. I bet. But it, yeah, as you said, it's nice he can add a little levity to it. And maybe Brad Marchand will reach out to him and be like, hey, man, been there, done it, done it on the NHL stage. Yeah, Mitch Marner, I believe, did that as well. Uh, another Maple Leafs prospect, Ronnie Hirvonen, excuse the pronunciation, still getting used to all these new players coming in. Uh, five goals, four assists, and 20 games for Asats this year. So productive campaign for him, just 18 years old, I believe. And for these young players playing in the top leagues in Europe, that's pretty good production from the young Maple Leafs prospect. I think really the only one who, who has a chance based off, off – what I've seen so far, and I haven't watched Rodion game highlights in full, but he most likely in the next five years would probably have the most the most chance of, of cracking the team. I would expect to, to see him 
probably in the next two to three years, judging by the trajectory of forwards. Usually you see those first round picks now expected to contribute at least in the bottom six a little bit earlier. Uh, we expect probably to see Nick Robertson make the team out of camp this year. We talked to Ross Levitan about that this past episode. Uh, another thing that I saw in the news this week, which I found very interesting, was in an interview with Kyle Dubas, he offered up something about the Maple Leafs' best defenseman, Morgan Riley. So Morgan this past season, when Sheldon Keefe took over as head coach and notably Tyson Berry was struggling before that, we've touched on that in previous pods under Mike Babcock. He just wasn't able to find his game, never really looked comfortable, wasn't looking like that offensive dynamic player that he looked like when he was in Colorado. And Riley went approached Sheldon after he took over as coach and offered his spot on the first power play unit to Barry, understanding that the most important thing for the team was to have all the best players clicking at once and understanding that Barry was struggling. He thought that maybe giving up his spot and letting Barry fill into a position where he was very comfortable playing the points and working the points on the first power play unit, as he did for Colorado, as he was an offensive powerhouse for Colorado for so many years, he offered up his spot to Barry to help get him going. And I think that just showcases the team first attitude that a lot of these players on the team have. And, that's what you love to see here, hear and love to see out of a player like Morgan Riley. Well, it just shows what, what Morgan's all about too, right? I mean, he had a really good chance to, to be to wear the C over over uh, John Tavares. He, he was, was actually one of my I thought he was gonna get it. Me too. I thought I thought he was gonna get it over Johnny T, but you know, I think what really kinda turned it in the favor of, of Johnny T was do you remember when Riley had to go through I, I believe it was one of the last games of the season and he got criticized for for uttering a a derogatory word and then they had to go through media and it just turned into a big thing and Riley ended up being innocent but it just kind of like it was like the Matthew situation last summer with you know in Arizona it just kind of yeah it just leaves a bad mark and you know Johnny T has a pretty clean clean sheet so yeah. They made the right call. And he's, and he's the more experienced player. He obviously right. was the captain in the island for a long time. I actually disagree with you with the Riley thing. I thought that the way that he was able to handle that whole thing and the organization kind of got out ahead of it and he went and met with the media and answered all their questions and just was such a consummate professional. No, he was. The whole but... thing would demonstrate that he would have made an excellent captain. And if anything, after he got proven innocent and it just turned out that that whole firestorm was – for nothing and it just sounded like something that it wasn't I thought that demonstrated his ability to be the captain of a team and really handle himself in a professional manner even when he's being accused of something that he didn't do right but I mean it's leaves a, a bitter taste in, yeah. in, in the mouths of, of management and fans so it just would it would definitely turn right away but hey he's a good assistant and I'm sure he does a lot uh, for for the younger guys now, which is crazy to think because Morgan's now been in the league since 2013, so he's he's now um, he's able to provide player. provide some some leadership, which is great. Yeah, they need him to provide leadership on that back end, especially with a lot of turnover and new players coming in. And we expect him to take that next step and hopefully have a campaign similar to his 2018-2019 campaign where he was in the Norris conversation, now with his new partner on the right side, TJ Brody. Uh, <laughs> Sheldon, Sheldon Keefe also spoke this week. They did their sort of annual 
like coaches thing where the Maple Leafs put their coaches, they put their managers up and they sort of interview them and take questions from fans and do all that sort of stuff. And he had a lot to say about the expectations of the team in this upcoming season, including but not limited to, that the team has greater levels to get to than they've been able to meet so far. He's excited to work with the new talent, both on the front end and the back end and behind the bench in addition to that with the additions of McLean and Mal Holcher coming in on the coaching staff, and that this is a fresh start with a fresh training camp where he's going to be able to instill everything that he wants right out of the gate, and he expects it to be significant changes. What were your takeaways from Sheldon Keefe's media availability? Well, just how excited he is, man. I mean, this is, this is a guy that's just so beloved by, by the team. You know, Babcock, stuck in his ways, has his old hockey styles, but – you know, as we talked about with Ross, this is a, a full, a full length, a full season of work for Keefe to really instill his message, his philosophy, what he wants done, and this is going to be a great test to see how the how the players respond in a full season with Keefe. I think Keefe taking over at training camp is a big thing because once you start getting into the middle of the season you already have you know your defensive structures put in you have your four checks you have your back checks you have all your structures already in place it becomes much more difficult for a coach who just came in to take over the situation to instill everything that they want to instill when you're still playing games competitively and there's already structure in place because you obviously don't want to upset the apple cart too much and just change everything right away or the team can look lost out there and I thought that was one thing that Sheldon Keefe did very well when he took over was adjusting to what was in place there and then making it work with the pieces and with the systems that were already in place from his predecessor, Mike Babcock. Now, moving into this season, I would expect that there's going to be a lot more pressure on him. And he addressed that as well, saying that pressure is a privilege. And when there is great pressure, you have great opportunity to succeed. And then he got into our favorite word, about how the team has so much potential. But when they have great pieces and you have great potential, they have to embrace it and have it be a part of what inspires them. And I don't mind this take on potential from the head coach because basically what he's saying is that he's taking it as pressure and that the pressure is a positive thing and that's going to inspire him and inspire his group to succeed. And if they can't figure out a way to do that, then they aren't going to be successful. I like this take from the coach and he's saying all the right things coming into this season. Now, in saying this, Kenny, we still do not have a finalized target date to start the season. And no, I'm, I'm sitting here a month away. December 1st is in two days. And if you're going to try and establish some sort of layout, a timeline, there has to be training camp. If you want a target date for Jan 1, what the hell is going on? I know there's some contractual uh, rifts and the NHL and the NHLPA have agreed on a long-term CBA, but now there's some issues with salary deferrals and all that. Yeah, but, they're trying to change the rules now. Basically, the NHL is again. Right. And it's like you've agreed in the CBA, this is, is, is what's happening. You can't go back. But now there seems to be a lot of twisting and turning. It's, it's time's ticking, man. If I was the players in this situation – I would be super rattled. And I'll tell you why. Because if the players ever came back to Batman and said, hey, you know what? Revenue streams have actually grown since 
at a higher trajectory than when we signed off on the last deal and the league is making more money than ever and the playoffs and the jersey sales and everything is off the charts. So we want to renegotiate now because you guys are making more money than when we negotiated the initial contract. The players would be laughed out of the room. There is no chance that Batman or any of the board of directors or any of the ownership would be willing to negotiate anything after the CBA was signed. It's sort of like, nope, you know what? You signed on the dotted line, so now you're accountable for it. Exactly. So now it seems hypocritical that the ownership and that the league and that all these guys, and I understand that revenues are low and particularly in smaller markets, not necessarily Toronto is going to be struggling as much as other markets, but make no mistake, MLSE has a lot of investments that are hemorrhaging money right now, whether it's, you know, the restaurants or whether it's, you know, obviously the lost ticket sales and lost revenue and they're going to be trimming, there's no concerts coming through the building that would normally be packed really from, you know, January 1st to December 31st, there's always events going on down there, whether, and like we said, whether it's Raptors, Maple Leafs, uh, the Toronto rock play there, there's all concerts all the time. I understand that's hard times for everybody, but for the league to come in now to the players and say, we expect you to slash your salary substantially because we aren't going to be making as much money seems kind of disingenuous. And if they do have to take a percentage because there's a lesser, it's a lesser schedule or whatever. So if it's 48 games, then maybe you pay them what 48 games is worth. I don't know what the players are going to be into. And obviously the NHLPA is trying to play hardball, but I totally agree with you. We're getting to the point now where there has to be an agreement soon or they're not going to be able to play even close to the amount of games that they're going to play. It seems almost like a foregone conclusion at this point that they will not be starting on January 1st as they expected and that they probably won't be able to squeeze in more than 48 games realistically. Well, perhaps they'll, they'll emulate the 2012-2013 shortened season, the lockout season, because I was saying this to my dad, they kicked off that season January 19th, 20th. 48 games, and the season ended just before July long weekend. And ideally, well, not ideally, they want to have it completed before the Summer Olympics. So maybe yeah. it's, it's the same template as the 2012-2013 season, because, Kenny, right now, I cannot see a Jan 1 start date. There's just no, there's not, enough, not enough pieces moving right now. They got the all-Canadian division practically intact. And, you know, there'll be regional play between American teams and then probably, like, playoff bubbles like we had last season. But there's a lot of tangibles that they got to figure out, and hopefully they can get it, and hopefully we can get it early January. But right now, Jan 1 doesn't really seem plausible. Well, not the least of which what they have to figure out is – what they're going to do when American teams and Canadian teams start having to move back and forth across the border. Like what, what are Canadian teams going to do? They're going to eventually, because they're going to have to play American teams. Eventually they aren't just going to be playing, you know, a 48 game schedule against just Canadian opposition for the whole season. Like that's preposterous. You have to have some mixing and matching at some point. So a lot of the theories that I've heard is maybe you play the first half of your schedule and it's all your division games against the Canadian division. So you play the first 24 games or whatever, against Canadian mm. opposition. But then after right. that, you're going to have to be traveling a little bit and you're going to have to have home games and you're going to have to have away games. So for the Canadian government, how do they manage that? Is there a way where they can do, you know, maybe rapid testing at the border to ensure the fact that none of the players are infected or is it a situation where they have to find a home south of the border where maybe the Canadian teams take up residence in several different arenas and then they have to play there and play their home games there. Schematically, this whole thing is just a nightmare and I do not take 
well, I should say I do take pity on whoever it is that has to figure this whole thing out because it's a total disaster. But I'm with you that time is of the essence and they better figure stuff out before it's too late because now it's getting to the point where they're up against the gun and there's going to have to be a compromise sooner rather than later if they expect to get the amount of games in that they were expecting really coming into this offseason. Some other headlines around the NHL, uh, your boys, the Tampa Bay Lightning, Inc. Mikhail Sergachev to a three-year $14.4 million deal. This is, deal was actually back-weighted, so I believe he's getting paid a little bit more than $7 million in the year three of the deal, which will help him if he ends up going to arbitration because he'll already have been making that amount of money in the third season, which would be the comparable when he's negotiating the second leg of his deal. I was surprised that the Bolts were able to get this done at that cap hit, quite frankly, because it really comes in at, what, four, four million bucks, five million bucks a season? I think so. I'm just kind of looking at Habs fans. It's like, hey, remember when you drafted this guy and he turned into a stud? Yeah. Well, uh, the, the Habs fans have still been – it's been the big black mark on their franchise was that they haven't been able to find – a number one center. They obviously had the bust in Galchenyak. They brought in Jonathan Duran, who they thought was going to be that guy, but he hasn't really blossomed into that top-tier elite center that you would expect or that you would want to be the leader of your franchise. Now, they do have depth that other teams don't have through their bottom six, but some would argue that basically they have four second or third lines. Yes. And they don't have the top-tier talents to compete with the other team's top tier talents and they can get skated off the ice at times. Now they do have a tight checking system. And I would expect that with the addition of Jake Allen to take some relief from Carey price, take a little bit of the starts from there, that price will be well rested. And we can, we all know what he's capable of when he is in his peak form and when he actually is feeling good. Like we saw after his little rest period this year, he basically just ran the penguins right out of town single-handedly. So uh, I don't know. At the end of the day, it's I won't, don't want to get too far away from Sergachev and start talking about the, the Montreal Canadiens roster construction. I was just very surprised at the price point for Sergachev because it really helped out Tampa Bay, who's up against the cap and looking to retain a lot of their players after their Stanley Cup win, to get one of their top defensemen signed to a nice term, three years, at a fair cap hit. Definitely, man. And I believe if you go back to the trade tree, it was Sergachev for Drew Ann, straight up. Yeah. Right? Yep. One for one. For one. Yeah. Uh, another veteran defenseman, Johnny Boychuk, your boy from the long from uh, Long Island. He was playing for the Islanders. He retires. Um, the reasoning for his nails. retirement. Yeah, he was tough as nails. The reasoning for his retirement, uh, he obviously sustained that pretty substantial injury above his eye a year ago. Now, this one, I think, stinks a little bit from afar. And I'll tell you why. Because Boychuk had come out last season and suggested that the eye injury, obviously, it looked very severe at the time. But he didn't expect that it was going to hinder his ability to come back and play in the NHL again. So now, all of a sudden, the Islanders, who are up against the cap crunch, trying to figure out how they're going to sign young players, obviously, Lou Lamarillo, the GM there, all of a sudden free up $6 million bucks in two years of term off a veteran player who's 36 years old. This one just seems like, you know, Lou Lamorello figured out a way to strong arm Boychuk and say, come on, you know, you got a family, you got that substantial injury, you could have lost your sight. Maybe it's time to just hang him up rather than coming back to the island. You've had a tremendous career. 
you know, you're going to maybe struggle and there's no, you know, certainty that you couldn't injure yourself again. So why not just hang him up? And perhaps Boychuk agreed. He was obviously very emotional in his press conference where he was talking about his retirement. But man, does this feel like Lou Lamorello might have just flexed him out a little bit? Perhaps. But I mean, the eye injuries, man, rare, but so, so, so gory and so dangerous. I, I, I remember Matt Sundin in 05, they were playing the Senators. He took a, a stick to the eye and it was just, I think he was out for half the season or something, man. It was just gruesome. And it's just, you wish Johnny and his family well, but it, it's, uh, it's probably just awful, awful, probably the worst injury to, to, to face in hockey. Yeah. And like you said, one of the most difficult to recover from if it's that severe. So hopefully for Boychuk, the recovery did go as planned and, you know, congratulations on an amazing career, obviously a cup champion with the Boston Bruins. So nothing really left to prove. This guy was just a warrior. Like you said, tough as nails. One of those guys that you wouldn't want to go into the corner with and a really nice career in the NHL. Jack Eichel, your boy from Buffalo also joins the Darren Dreger cafe earlier this week. Yeah. He was talking about um, basically the signings that Buffalo made this off season of Eric Stahl, Cody Eakin, Taylor Hall, suggesting that, in a situation like Buffalo is in where they're trying to find a winning culture and they have the young group and figure out a way to do things the right way at times when things are going badly, having the older guys in the room can help you out during those periods of adversity. And he further went on to add that he thinks it's awesome what Buffalo has been able to accomplish this off season. What do you make of the star player from Buffalo's comments? Nothing really. I mean, I, I stick by to what I said in the previous <laughs> part. It's like I don't, I don't you, see you much. You care about Buffalo. I don't see. Well, no, I care. Like we can talk about it. I just, I think, like I don't see much potential, potential for them in the future, even with the addition of of Taylor Hall. I, I just, they don't really seem like a threat, man. Like Cody Eakin, Eric Stahl. Eric Stahl's aging. He's he's way past his prime. Cody Eakin, like the only really gem out of it is Taylor Hall, but who knows if he's going to thrive, man? Who knows if he's going to play and connect well with with Eichel Eichel's just fed up man I feel like his agent or, or somebody in, in Buffalo management is his folks are just hey just say this just say something like generic mention adversity you'll be good <laughs> <laughs> yeah mention the potential around the group and you'll be all right yeah. I I do think that he has a chance for a monster season playing with Skinner okay. and Hall we'll see how it plays out obviously but if those three can find chemistry I think they have the potential to be one of the best lines in the Eastern conference for this upcoming season. And I would not be surprised at all. You know, we saw our good friend and who was on the show last week, Ross Levitan tweeting about those early 2000 senators lines when it was uh, Jason Spezza, Daniel Alfredson and Danny Just Heatley. Rip I think the Leafs apart. 42 goals, I believe it was between the three of them through the first 20 games of the season in one of those early campaigns. I would not be surprised at all to see similar production out of these three players if they can find the chemistry and get things rolling right out of the gate in camp. That's a good kind of comparison, I will say. Hey, speaking of, of early 2000s Sens lineups, I was watching Courtesy Sportsnet 2002 Leaf Sens. Man, I, I'm realizing like they didn't call anything. Nothing. Isn't it, isn't it hectic when you go back and watch? Everybody's just cross-checking and basically just water skiing around with, <laughs> with their sticks just hooked around people. It's hectic. Dude, it's, it's, it's insane. I, the, the one I was watching was the famous Gary Roberts triple OT goal. 
but it just seemed like it just drags on. I mean, it's not as fast paced. Like the game is so fast now, but there was a, right before Robert's It was goal, so gritty and just so slow. McKay, I think it was McKay blatantly like stick through the legs, clear blatant trip. And it's just like, eh, like back the other way. It's like nothing, <laughs> nothing was called. Yeah, no. Honestly, the best part was when they did call something and it was so egregious that obviously they would have to call it because they let right. so much stuff go. But then the guys are still arguing going to the penalty box. So then you see the replay and it's just like, man, like you were hooking this guy through the whole neutral zone while he had the puck. I know. And then eventually you pull him down. And like the ref's like, ah, like, come on, man. <laughs> just got to let him keep skating there. But it gives you good insight into why that when they did lock out the league, I believe it was what, 0304, if memory serves me correctly. 0405. 0405, rather. And then they made all these changes to the game to make it faster and started calling all the penalties and trying to make it a uh, more offensively geared game because some of those games could really drag. That from, from 2000 to 04, the, the Leafs had so many like Bay Street bullies. It was like Shane Corson, Just Darcy grinders. Tucker, Ty Domi. Like, no, like if you were to take, I guess it would have been like McGilney. Like if someone was going to take a run at McGilney, it's like, you, like you got to face Domi, Tucker, Corson. Good luck. Yeah. No, and and they also had a tendency to just pick up guys who were sort of in the tail end of their career and right. bring them in. Like um, Ronnie Francis. Ron Brian Francis. Bring, yeah, those were two good, that I was going to bring up that came to mind. And these guys would just come in. Doug Gilmore, again, for the second term, came in, played one game, got injured, and then that was it for him for his career. It was just a place where older players would come to retire, and there was a place for that in the older game when you could get away with you know the hooking and the slashing and the foot speed wasn't as important as important but then after they changed the rules obviously that was the beginning of the the dark ages for the Toronto Maple Leafs where they weren't able to adjust to the new rules or styles of play and just kind of became that dinosaur of a franchise where they didn't have any success for an extended period of time let's move to our favorite segment the library bar All right, you know what time it is. Time to pick who's drinking and why. Uh, I'll go start, and it was a gentleman we had mentioned earlier in the podcast, someone who just got relieved of their position, uh, Matt Patricia, the head coach of the Detroit Lions. This guy just never had success instilling the Patriot way, as it's come to be known, in Detroit. And large parts of the reports that were coming out when Matt Patricia would leave, you know, at the end of the season and sort of do like their post review or whatever, the players would be popping bottles of champagne because they were so aggravated at the fact that this guy was just such an asshole for lack of a better way, way to put it all the time. It was just a complete disaster from day one. Really when he took over, he obviously never got control of the room and the Detroit, Detroit management good on him, got fed up with it. And this is just another situation where sometimes Coaches who are excellent, excellent coordinators don't necessarily end up being excellent head coaches when they're promoted in the role. Matt Patricia having a couple drinks to uh, try and forget that last couple strenuous years in Detroit. I'm going to go with Jarrett Patterson, Buffalo Bulls 
running back, NCAA football. Eight, yes, Kenny, eight touchdowns in a single game. Eight? Eight touchdowns. That's pretty good. Ties an FBS record, 409 rushing yards. I was in studio covering a little Bundesliga, and I kept refreshing Twitter. I think it was the score, and it was like Patterson, like three touchdowns, four touchdowns. Like, and then he hit six. I'm like, holy moly, eight. Like, how does someone get eight touchdowns in a game? Like, Derrick Henry goes off for three touchdowns yesterday. That's the only guy who I think would come close to getting eight TDs in college. Well, it's like they're just feeding that guy, right? Feeding like, him. what defense was he playing against? Just turning that thing into Swiss cheese. It must have been similar to the likes of a high school football team defense. Because that's that's atrocious to give up eight <laughs> touchdowns to the same player. Like you got, I'm, I'm sorry, you got to stack the box. You got to get some extra guys in there, and you got to make sure make the quarterback beat you, rather than just giving the open freeway 401 QEW. You know, whatever they call it, the QVR lane. Just like this guy's just right down Main Street for eight. Unbelievable. Eight, and it's great. Every touchdown, he's like gone. Like not even like contested. Like. Impressive. Not like horrible coverage, just like, yeah, gone. Like could have had 10. Yeah. But that that's was a, mine. That's, a, that's an unbelievable total. And congrats. Only 20 years old. Oh, man, he definitely was having a couple drinky poos on the way back to campus. Can you imagine being a D1 athlete at a school and then going off for eight touchdowns? He is going to get some preferential treatment when he gets back to campus. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he probably had a good time. He had a good night. He definitely had a good night. <laughs> All right, but yeah, you got anything on the docket for this week? Just trying to get into the Christmas spirit. I guess we're in the week of, of December finally. So that's cool. Yeah. Hey, yeah, it's actually uh, my birthday coming up. It's actually next Saturday. Number number 30, the Are three you decade mark. The big 3 0. That's the big huge, 3-0. man. Yeah, so we're uh, obviously it's not going to be as big of a celebration as maybe we had previously anticipated, but just we're, I think we're just going to have a, a nice dinner at the house with my roommates, have a couple balls of wine, cook up like a prime rib, that sort of thing. Keep it pretty low key. Also in some career news, um, for the upcoming season, I'm actually going to be taking over as the producer for the Raptors on TSN 1050. So unreal, my man. Congrats. Yeah. So, so that'll be a, that'll be a lot of fun, something to look forward to. Um, unfortunately we aren't going to be able to do the Maple Leafs game night or Raptors game night with, uh, our boy Ross Levitan because they're trying to keep it keep the amount of people going into the studio at once yes. to a minimum so a little bit of a disruption to what our regular schedule normally would be but still a big opportunity and i'm really looking forward to working with some of our tsn colleagues uh, jim taddy josh lewenberg kayla gray kate Burness, jack armstrong all of these guys some of the best in the business and i'm really looking forward to working with them this upcoming season That'll be great, Kenny. That's some good news, buddy. So, and I also believe that this is our last episode in season one of Not Another Leafs Podcast. Whoa! I believe season two starts at the beginning of December. So I would just like to thank all the listeners who tuned in. We obviously came on the air a little bit later in the game comparatively to some of the other podcasts on the Hockey Podcast Network, but the numbers of and listeners have been slowly increasing. So thank you to everybody who takes the time out of their day. I know there's a ton of content available and I know Brendan and I both appreciate the fact that you're choosing our content to listen to on a weekly basis and something to look forward to in the regular season. We'll be jumping to two episodes a week. So we'll be doing releasing episodes both on Monday and on Wednesday in the upcoming season. Get ready. Thank you to all our listeners. 
everyone's favorite and least favorite hockey team, Kenny. The Toronto Maple Leafs. Follow us on Twitter at LeafsPod, at HockeyPodNet, at BMcCarthy95, at Ken Stapon. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.